This morning's scripture is taken from the book of First Chronicles. When I looked and found what my reading would be today, I was puzzled. First of all, I had to find the book of First Chronicles because it's not one I normally look for. Secondly, I found the verse and I read it. It's a short verse, one verse. As Kaysen was saying, sure, you get one verse. When I read, I get like six or seven <laughs> verses. Well, that's the way it works. And after I read it, I thought, I've got to check on something. So when I came this morning, Jordan and Mandy were in, their office, in the office there, so I went in. I said, today's verse is 1 Chronicles 12.32. And he goes, yes, it is. I said, okay, but I am very interested in how this is all going to play out. So the scripture reading today is 1 Chronicles 12.32. Of Ishakar, men who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do, 200 chiefs, and all of their kinsmen under their command. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There's certain verses in the Bible that never got cross-stitched on a pillow, and this is one of them. <laughs> so, a lot of people don't know this, but the tribes of Israel in the Old Testament each have their own personality or gifts that they bring to the other nations. We're most familiar probably with the Levites, who were the priests of the community. But all the tribes had this. And this is about the tribe. This verse is about the tribe of Issachar. Issachar was known as the people who understood the times and where Israel ought to go. Uh, the, the symbol, each tribe actually had a symbol. And, and uh, the tribe of Issachar, their symbol was a donkey. The idea was that a horse would follow you it it would follow you to your death. So if you told a horse to go somewhere it shouldn't go, a horse would do it anyway because it's listened to you. A donkey's a good animal to ride and to work with, but they're also stubborn. Okay, and the story of this is the story of Balaam, whose donkey talks to him because he won't go where the angel's gonna kill them both. Okay? That a donkey will follow you, but he'll also be stubborn when you go in a direction you're not supposed to go. And that was Issachar's job in the nations. They were supposed to be sort of the future tellers, understanding what's going on in the world and how Israel ought to respond to it. They were the strategic people. And that, for me, tells me that there's a place in the community of God for looking around at what's going on in the world and saying, these are the times, and here's how we need to respond to that. And so today, I want to act like the tribe of Issachar for you. Okay? I want to look at the times that we are living in and wonder a little bit about what kind of times we're living in. So, so it, it's kind of a backward sermon for me. A lot of times I take the text and I exegete the text. I get the meaning out of the text and then I go to the world. Today and next week I'm going to do the opposite. I'm going to start in the world and look at what's going on in our world and then I want to come back to Christian principles that help us understand how to respond in these times. After all, we are living in strange times, aren't we? Okay, how many of you have felt the strangeness of the times we're living in? Okay, I think back to me growing up 20 years ago, and I look at my kids now, and they are living in a different world that is not the world I was in, and it was definitely not the world my parents were in, and seems like a totally different world than my grandparents were in. How many of you remember when people worked at the same company their whole career? Anybody did that? Okay. 
Uh, how many remember when your family all lived in town, so you got together and you knew, like, all your cousins and fifth cousins and all this stuff, right? Uh, how many remember when your phone was attached to the wall with a spirally cord, and you could get a long cord, but what was the downside? It would get tangled and wrong, and if you were a little OCD, you had to go back and fix them. You remember this? How many of you remember when there was nothing open on Sundays? Okay, so what did you do on Sundays? Sunday drive. Does anybody remember Sunday drive? You just drove to wherever, you know. Just drove. That's what you did. And uh, a lot of times you'd end up where? With family, because you all lived kind of in the same place, right? Uh, how many remember when the question was what church you went to? You'd go up to somebody and say, what church do you go to? Well, now, what do you say? Do you go to church? Right? Totally different question. Uh, how many of you remember when the church pews, the parking lots, and even the offering plates were pretty full? How many of you wonder why some of your friends, some of your kids, some of your grandkids have looked at this thing called the church that's been so important to your life and said, no thanks, it's not for me. There are changes. And these changes are not just going on in the church. Many companies are struggling with the increasingly unstable economic and cultural landscape. Our nation is probably as divided and our politics as divisive as they've ever been, uh, if not more. And these are not just big changes. They're little changes, right, that we feel every day. The other day I got a book. We got a book in the mail, which happens a lot in my house. Okay, but this book had white and yellow pages, and it was wrapped in a plastic bag. It was a phone book, and my six-year-old looked at me and said, Dad, what is that book that you just got? <laughs> well, I didn't order that on Amazon, sweetie. That's a phone book. I had to explain to my daughter a phone book. She didn't know. Um, so what is going on in this world? Obviously, it's big, it's complicated. I could spend a long time talking about it. But I think there are two major factors that are sort of driving the changes in our world. And I want to be Issachar today and try to give you some language to understand them a little bit. The first is the end of Christendom. Christendom is the word that's given to the culture in the West. So that would be Europe and then into the Americas here where Christians had the dominant and normative position in culture. Okay? The early church was a minority religion. Okay? Most people weren't Christians. Okay? They, were, they were a small, small group. But by the 500s, a guy named Constantine makes Christianity the, the dominant religion, the official religion of the Roman Empire. And ever since, in the West and in the Americas, as, the, as uh, your way, as Europe kind of crossed over the, the ocean... Christianity has been the home field advantage, privileged religion. It was assumed you were religious. It was assumed that you were Christian. In fact, uh, even though we we're called a Christian nation, not, there was never a time when all Americans were Christians. All of our forefathers were not Christians. But they at least all had a common Judeo-Christian value system, right? I mean, it was just kind of an understanding you think Christian. Pastors were looked at as important members of the community. Uh, you couldn't be the president of the bank or a government official without being a good church member. And that normally meant you better be Methodist or Presbyterian. Okay? <laughs> right? You better be one of the mainliners. Okay? But let's be honest. That's over. It's been over for a long time, and Christianity is just sort of figuring out that we are now the minority. It's not a question of 
whether you, what church you go to, it's if you go to church. And increasingly, you're strange if you do go to church. Okay? And I am very hesitant to meet new people and tell them what I do because of the weird looks that I get and the conversation stopper that it is. Here's a great example of this. I read an article a while back about the major debate that happened in America when JFK was running for president. Do you remember this? And what was the debate? Could we have a Catholic president? Could we have a Catholic president? He'd have to listen to the Pope. What would that look like? We now have had a president who had an affair in the Oval Office, lied about it on TV, and still speaks up on political issues. And we now have a president who not only has had affairs, but have bragged about them. Okay? Now, I'm not trying to say anything. I'm trying to pick on both parties right now. Okay? I'm, not trying to pick on a, I'm not trying to be party line here. I'm not trying to pick on Catholics either. I'm just saying that's a big difference in 50 years, that the discussion is completely different about ethics, about morals, and about your faith. Okay? The, the dialogue is completely different. Whereas when these news channels started, you'd got a lot of pastors on the news. You don't get pastors the same way anymore on the news. We now live in a post-Christendom world, and the church doesn't know how to deal with it. We know how to deal with the, the reality that used to be that you better come to church. You were expected to come to church. In fact, I knew people that didn't go to church, but they would dress up when they went out to lunch on Sunday afternoon, so people thought they were in church even though they skipped. Because there was a stigma if you skip church. Like that, that's gone. It's over and it ain't coming back. Okay? So now the church is in a period where instead of having the home field advantage in our culture, we're the minority. Okay? We are now missionaries in a culture that doesn't believe in Jesus, where a lot of our friends and family, a lot of younger people, have never been in church. They don't even know what you're talking about when you're talking about Easter. They just don't even know. And that is a new reality for the church. This is complicated, so, so we've got post-Christendom. On the other side of this, we, we have what's called post-modernism. Now, this is a kind of a tough philosophical term. It can get really complicated. Um, but let me try to explain it as simply as I can. Okay? Uh, postmodernism, mod it means after modernism. It's whatever comes after modernism. And it's called postmodernism right now because we don't know what it is. Okay? We, we're kind of waiting to see how it pans out. But we know what modernism was. Modern thinking comes out of the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment was a time, especially thanks to the invention of the printing press, where knowledge was a big deal where we could learn and we could grow and we could have information. So people could publish. They could share their ideas. We get this thing called the scientific method where you could research and you could study and you could objectively understand things. And so modernism and the Enlightenment built on this idea that, first of all, people were autonomous individuals that sort of grew out of that. And there was an optimism that scientific discovery and mechanical invention would inevitably live to a better life. It went like this. The more we know, the better things are going to get. Right? The more we know, the better things are going to get. And so we just need to know more. And we need to know more. We need to study more. We need to push the limits. Okay? Facts could be found by the experts and recorded by the masses. Okay? We've already had reference to the epitome of modernism. It was the encyclopedia. Okay, how many of you had an encyclopedia in your house? Right? Big group of books. This is what the experts say about all these alphabetically. You could look them up. Uh, there it is, modernism. Boom. 
Get the experts to understand what's going on. Write it down. The world is a better place because we have that knowledge. During the modern era, organizations were set up and manufacturing was set up because somebody needed to manage and develop this optimism about the future of the world, right? We need to manage it. We need to understand it. We need to grow. Uh, nation states, business models. There's no nation. I don't, you don't know if you think about this. You assume a nation state. There weren't any until the last 500 years. What you had was kingdoms, okay? It's a very different understanding and a very modern understanding. Denominations form in this time, okay? Because we wanted large organizations to sort of manage the smaller organizations. Huge companies started to serve the general public, to serve the masses, and we could scientifically understand what the masses needed. Most of them that served the general public had the name general in them, all right? General Electric, General Motors, General Mills, and we in the Presbyterian Church had our General Assembly. All the same thing. General. We can, we can go to the masses. Now, modernism has brought us some wonderful things. Medicines and surgeries. I don't know how many times I'm in a hospital praying with someone, and I think, 50 years ago, I'd be planning your funeral. And now, I'm praying for you for a little outpatient surgery you're having. Right? I mean, it's amazing some of the things that modernism has brought us. A new world and the exploration of that new world. An understanding of how people work and how to help people. Travel. But in the end, modernism was not good on its promise. Okay? This was not inevitably good progress. That's what everybody thought, inevitably good. But we get a Great Depression. We get two world wars. Hiroshima. The brutality of Nazi Germany in places like Auschwitz. And the world still faces poverty, ethnocentricity, and racism. This culminated in the 1970s with Vietnam, Watergate, the Civil Rights Movement, the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. and JFK. See, what people did was they lost their faith in the inevitability of progress, the hope of the scientific method, and the trust that authorities that were managing the scientific method and the progress were actually had the best for the people in mind. And so in the wake of modernism, and especially gaining root because of this huge digital culture that we have and a rise in new technology, we have postmodernism. People have moved past those modern ideas. Okay? This is why some of you, your grandkids think totally different than you do. Okay? Because you were raised modern and they were raised postmodern. They don't trust the inevitable goodness of progress. They don't think the same way as individuals. They think now more corporately, right? They're connected through Facebook and Instagram and tie their stories to one another. Think about how you can buy things now in a different country where they speak a different language and you're reading their website in English, pay them in their currency thanks to, thanks to uh a software that we have, and then they can ship stuff to you. I mean, there's this whole global network now that wasn't there before. At the same time, think about the shop local movement, right? We're getting global, and we're also getting local. So even global companies like Starbucks, you go into Starbucks, you're going to find pictures of what? Local history. Because Starbucks wants to sell you the same cup of coffee as everywhere in a place that feels comfortable in your own home. This juxtaposition of global and local, by the way, they're calling global. Global and local, global. That is just a new way of thinking. 
And some organizations, a lot of organizations that came out of modernism, are struggling to know how to deal with this new cultural landscape. They don't know how to keep employees that are younger, that are from this culture. Okay? They don't know how to deal with the way the world is changing so much. A lot of these big companies that I mentioned that had the word general in it are, are selling off big chunks of their company because they're just too big. Or they're getting bailouts from the government because the government is so good at handling these changes too, right? <laughs> no, you know what? Modern organizations were designed to resist change. They were designed to be stable and long-term, and they are designed for a world that doesn't exist anymore. So a lot of our organizations are struggling to understand how to get fast and how to be able to respond to a world that moves so much quicker when they were designed for a world that's not there. So actually they're designed to be negatively influenced by this world. You understand? They're designed exactly to fail in this world. In contrast to the encyclopedia, the epitome of postmodernism is what? Wikipedia, right? We don't need the experts because the experts have their own money and their own agenda on the line. What we need to do is group source information. So we all have a say in the information, and because we correct each other, we get actually to the truth. You can argue whether that works or not, but actually studies on Wikipedia's accuracy say it's pretty good. Uh, especially as compared to the encyclopedia. Because what's the problem with the encyclopedia? You print it and it changes because the world's changing so fast now. We have felt these changes all over the place. And it used to be that people who studied these kinds of things would talk about generations. How many of you remember those conversations? We had the boomers and the busters and Generation X. Do you know what? A lot of people are moving away from those kind of discussions. Because the change is no longer generational. Yeah, it's, it's, it's native to me and to my kids. And maybe very foreign for you. But how many of you gotten on Facebook now so you can talk to your grandkids? And how many of you have bought a phone that may or may not be smarter than you are? You're not quite sure. <laughs> I know because since I've been here, at least three or four people have handed me their phone and said, Jordan, I don't know how to do this. This isn't working right. Okay, so I, as a young pastor, am also a phone repairman now, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> right? My kids are digital natives. Okay? But, but you all are moving there. You all are migrating there. It's happening. And it's a little uncomfortable. Anybody? Anybody a little uncomfortable to figure out the internet, not know what's going on all the time? But you're stuck with it. I remember my kids, when my kids were little... We had a problem that they were ripping pages out of their kids, out of kids' books, okay? Like, all of our kids' books were way thick on the shelf because the pages were getting all bent up. And then I watched my son turn pages, and you know what he was doing? He was swiping pages, okay? So, like, you know on a phone, you have to swipe all the time? He was putting his finger going like this and swiping all the pages, and he was bending the snot out of all of our books, so I had to teach my son how to, how to flip the page. Okay? When I got a phone, I thought, oh, this is like a book. You swipe, like you turn the page. When my son saw a book, he said, oh, it's like a phone. I swipe it. Okay? Total turnaround from print to digital. See, it's very native for my son. It's a little more native for me. It may be very uncomfortable that you're being forced to migrate to some of these things. Right? How many of you have to go to the doctors and you have to check in on a computer and you're like, why can't I just say my name and sign in, right? 
See, it's not generational anymore. We're all having to change because this change isn't just generational. It's sweeping. It's grand. It's epic. And between postmodernism and post-Christendom, the church doesn't know what to do. And as the world has changed, as our children have moved away, as companies we work for our whole lives are closing down and communities are looking very different than they used to, what is the one thing that's generally stayed the same that we could be our peace? Oh, at least this thing is the same as I remember it. What was the one stable force that could give us sanity in our insane times? Church, right? At least my church looks kind of like it, pretty much like it did when I was younger. And here's the problem. The problem is that that's not going to work forever. That the church has to react to the world that it lives in. The church is always both timeless and timely. There's a part of the church that's always timeless, that, that always preaches the same message, the gospel of Jesus and all. But, but the church also has to be timely. That, yeah, the church has worked for you, but how has it worked for your grandkids? We need a church that works for both. And man, that is not easy. That is not easy. One of my life verses is another little verse. comes from the book of Esther, another book most people don't turn to very much. But Esther 4.14, Mordecai, her uncle or guardian that's kind of taking care of her, sends message about this, about, to her about this massive genocide that's about to take place of the Jews. And he says this, For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. So what he says is, if you want to be quiet, I think God's going to save us anyway. But your people, a lot of your people and a lot of your family are going to die in this moment. And you're going to regret this. But he goes on. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. For such a time as this. You know, there's sometimes when I wish I could be a pastor back in the 50s. You know, where I was really respected People asked my opinion where I didn't have to pay for a haircut. Everybody would know who the pastor is. They just come in, you know. You might wish that you could be a member of this church at a time where it was more stable, where it had more finances, where we didn't have to have such difficult conversations about moving the church forward. But you know what? God put you here now. And God called me to be a pastor for such a time as this. And we've got to be faithful to that. This is not an easy time to be a church. Okay? This is a hard time to be a church. There's going to be challenging conversations ahead. But you know what? This is when God put us on deck. Okay? This is where God has us. And we want to be faithful to, for such a time as this. Because there's nothing worse than missing your time. As I was talking to my dad, he told me two crazy stories. He said he was actually supposed to have dinner with Mother Teresa one time. Uh, he was friends with a lady named Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who wrote a lot on death and dying. And, and uh, Mother Teresa had read Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, and Elizabeth had read Mother Teresa. And so they set up a dinner, and the, the day before, and my dad was going to get to go, because he was one of Elizabeth's friends and, and close workers. Right before... Uh, she had to go somewhere else, and he didn't get to have dinner with Mother Teresa. He was also supposed to have dinner with Martin Luther King Jr. Martin Luther King Jr. was supposed to speak at his college 
And he was on the chapel team. So as a chapel team, he was going to get to have dinner with Martin Luther King Jr. And right before it happened, about a week before, there was this major conflict that broke out in Africa. And they asked Dr. King to come over and try to resolve some peace in uh, this nation in Africa. And so my dad can say he almost had dinner with Mother Teresa and he almost had dinner with Martin Luther King Jr. And I think, wouldn't that have been a cooler story if he'd actually done it? (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) To miss your time, to miss your moment is disappointing. It's regrettable. And this is our time. And we may wish for another time, because this is a hard time to be a church. It's going to have a lot of challenging conversations ahead. But it's our time. So we've got to be faithful to it. And I'm convinced that this is not all bad, by the way. That actually what Jesus is doing in his church is he's rising up a church that instead of just going with the flow and accepting its home court advantage, the, the church of tomorrow is going to be a church that takes very seriously the gospel and how they follow Jesus. Okay, that what we've lost is a lot of people who were kind of in church because they were supposed to be but weren't really committed to be here. And what's actually becoming clear to me is that it's time for a more rigorous, more faithful church than we've had in a long time in this world and in this country. And we can write our own future. We don't have to assume what the church is and what it does. We can make the future our own and we need to for our kids and for our grandkids. Do you know that by life expectancy, life expectancy is going up so much, that our kids that are in our children's ministry are likely to be 22nd century children. Okay? Like, some of us may get to 100. Okay? The expectation is most of our children will live beyond 100. How are we doing at preparing our children for the 22nd century? We're struggling with the 21st century. But it's our opportunity, it's our privilege, and it's our responsibility to think about the church moving forward. So let's take that seriously. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are at work in this world. Be with us, guide us, we pray as a church that we may be faithful followers and that we may be great missionaries to our culture today. Amen.